And so San Francisco also does not have hardly any residential downtown. Whereas if you look at Oakland, tons of residential mixed in with the commercial. So you kind of have this perfect storm of abandonment of a space. So you don't have anybody living there. And then now you have all of the tech workers who are saying, we're not going back to the office. So you have, what are eight city blocks that are just empty. I love this company, not just because of what they do, but two of my best friends run it, Nick Huber and Mitchell Baldridge. It's called Ari Koseg, and they have a singular mission to help real estate investors spend less money on taxes. If you're an investor, a broker, or a property owner, listen up. This is crucial information. A cost segregation study can help you unlock the hidden value in your property by enabling you to write off components of your building faster. This means you'll pay less in taxes and have more cash in your pocket to reinvest or distribute to your investors. The team at RE Coseg are experts in this highly specialized field. They only use engineers to perform their studies, and they use the highest industry standards for their reports. Over the past year, they've completed over 600 Coseg studies and have saved their clients more than $65 million in taxes. For smaller properties, they do site visits fully virtually, which makes it extremely fast and easy to get your Coseg completed. They also have an experienced team for larger in-person site visits. Big or small, they make it extremely quick and easy. And the best part? Their initial analysis is absolutely free. They'll examine your property and show you how much you could be saving. Visit recostseg. That's R-E-C-O-S-T-S-E-G dot com. I've been really excited and it has been cool to watch this company better pitch. They are the experts in private equity deck design. Whether you need a fundraising deck, a corporate overview and track record deck, or investor reporting collateral, they have you covered. Better Pitch is experienced putting together pitch decks for raises as small as a million and as large as half a billion. The best part? Better Pitch completes all design, copywriting, and market research. That's right. They pull all data both on an asset and market level and illustrate the research to support your investment thesis. Your days of moonlighting as a designer and analyst are over. Better Pitch is the plug-and-play option to deliver an institutional quality pitch deck that leads to a more effective fundraise. You send your raw deal documents, they design, provide market research, and refine your copywriting. And the best part? They deliver the final product in a PowerPoint file for you to use on future deals. Better Pitch is extending a risk-free offer exclusively for the Fort Podcast listeners. They will work with you until you're 100% satisfied, accommodating as many revisions as you need. Visit betterpitch.com. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-P-I-T-C-H.com to schedule your call today. Hey guys, I want to update you a little bit on Fort Capital. We are still acquiring Class B Industrial throughout Texas and the Sun Belt. We're looking to buy deals between 15 and up to 250 million. We're looking for portfolios now. We offer industry-leading incentives, which you can see on our website, that include an additional half a point commission for off-market deals. One thing we found was that our historical contract-to-close ratio is 98%. So if we're making a contract, we're getting it closed. We have a robust team to deliver an on-time smooth closing. And you can see all this at fortcapitallp.com backslash deal dash incentive. Thank you so much.
Shalo, I'm so excited you're here today. Thank you for joining me. I am so excited to be here. I'm a, I'm a big fan and I, I love listening. So it's fun to be on here. It's Texas. It's like 105 degrees. And you said you went running last night at 1030 and it, it, the heat didn't give up on you even at 1030, did it? No, it is hot here. Y'all are really putting the pressure, but I made it. I was a little bit of a sweaty mess, but I did fine. I love it. Well, we got to spend a lot of time at Capital Camp together. Um, I've really enjoyed just getting to know you and following you. And so I'm really excited about today's conversation. I think it would be fun to start with kind of how did you get to the Bay Area? Because you're not from there. So how do, how do you get up there? Yeah, I am not. I, I grew up in very rural Oklahoma. I'm from a, a town of about 300 people. Okay. And when I was growing up there, I was like most people. So in a small town, all business is small business, right? There are no there are no major corporations. So everybody has some kind of thing where they like repair wells and they <laughs> and they keep cattle and they sell hay or something. Yeah. We don't call it side hustles, but you know, <laughs> you you see all this work that's happening all the time. And my family was no different. My dad runs a salvage yard, still does there. So I grew up there in his business and we just have this long history of like Oklahomans wanting to go to California. I don't know if it's like the grapes of wrath, the Great Depression, but it's like, <laughs> it's real. I mean, everybody talks about it. No one ever talks about going to New York. It's always California. Okay. So I was growing up there. I was spending a bunch of time in my dad's business. I was learning a lot about all these other small businesses. And I had this great opportunity where I got a chance to go to a boarding school and that fed into the University of Oklahoma. And from there, I did a summer program at UC Berkeley and made my way out to the Bay. Okay, so you get out to the bay, and you said your your dad owned a salvage yard. One of my favorite tweets that I came across the other day was a dump truck of <laughs> yes. was heading to the dump, and you flagged them down, and then ended up pulling out these like amazing steel windows. Something about nature. Yes, yes, I I am still a salvage girl at heart. I mean, I I, I when I was growing up there, I mean, I was pulling parts, I was organizing I inventory, it. like I was I was deep in it. And that's still definitely part of my blood. Like I, love it. I there's, I'll tell you like a, a kind of a funny story. There was this one guy in our community who he was the only guy that changed tractor tires. Okay. Right. So, <laughs> and so if you want a tractor, tra tractor tire change, you, you go to this guy Yeah. and you, you call him on his own phone and then you go and pick him up because he doesn't drive. Okay. Right. And so you, you bring him out to your farm and, but he had a, like this incredible business. So yeah. there was just this like rich fabric of people just just doing things, just getting, I don't know, just getting things done. And that's like, that's part of my ethos today. It's like, I see somebody, they got some steel windows. Those things are expensive, right? They are. They're hard to get. And so, yeah, I'm flagging them down. I'm putting them in my project. Well, you, okay. I absolutely love your business. I think what you do is super unique. And so I think well, well, let's let's just start with, is this something you studied in college? Maybe the first thing is like, tell me what you do from your perspective. And was this a dream growing up? Did you fall into it? Like, how did this happen? So what I do now is, so I run a company called Creek Development. We've been in business since 2016. Okay. We do fee development. So essentially we do, we get hired by developers to kind of run their projects. Okay. So we're doing a bunch of construction management, a bunch of design, some permit expediting, utility expediting, some strategy along the way. And I didn't know that this was a career that existed, but it definitely was not on my radar. But I love it. I feel like it, I have found the place that's the perfect fit for me. It's, it's left brain, right brain. It's indoor, outdoor. 
it's it's just very balanced. It's it's like there's a lot of math, there's a lot of art, and that's a great fit for me. Did you go to school for it, or did you just like fall into it? No, I I went to school for engineering. Okay. I actually started out in physics, but I had I was kind of like running into issues where I couldn't. I was running out of money. Basically, I went to my advisor and I said like look, I'm going to take a semester off. And I had this great advisor, this guy named Wayne Steen. He was like the last guy that was allowed to smoke cigarettes in his office, you know, he like, <laughs> he like wore a tracksuit. And, and, and he was like, you will do no such thing. Like, what yeah. are you doing for the rest of the day? And so I, I cleared my schedule. I sat down in his office and, and we sat there and this guy like worked through it with me. Like, yeah. okay, you need to change your major because nobody's giving you a scholarship in physics. Like get, get over to engineering. So yeah. I did. And then he's like, what hours are you working? How do you, what else can we add in? So he got me like the second job in a lab and that ended up just changing my whole, you know, it shifted. It was, but it was great. It was actually a really great fit. So I shifted to automotive engineering, Okay. which like, okay, I'm coming from the salvage world. Like I already know cars. Now I'm in a machine shop. Like this feels very comfortable to me. Yeah. And it was, a. I thought it was really good. It was very hands-on the program I was in. I got my first job in engineering and it was terrible yeah it was what you think now of engineering now that you know right like it's it's very dry and yeah. it moves very slowly i'm kind of nimble i like to go fast and so i, I was kind of devastated i was like oh okay that all right i gotta i gotta figure out something else and i i tried a couple of different things and one of the things was i took a cabinet making class and that ended up being a pivot that I could have never expected. What so, did you learn in cabinet making <laughs> class that made you become a pretty much world-class developer in the Bay Area? I I found that I missed working with my hands. Okay. So I, I got a job as a cabinet maker. And I pretty quickly, because I knew CAD, I was doing some design work. I was working on, on a project and they asked me to do an install. And so I went out to do this install and it was one of these big construction sites where there's, you know, there's like 200 guys just doing stuff and yeah. running all around. And I check in with the site supervisor and I, and I go to start my work and I'm like wide eyed because I realized for the first time that we were a subcontractor. Like this thing that I thought was my whole world. I was like, there's this whole symphony. There's this guy conducting the symphony. And I'm like one little tiny piece of it. And so I, I went back and I was like, guys, we're a subcontractor. <laughs> I think I'm onto something. And I was like, I need to be on the construction side. Yeah. So we had a, that company had a construction arm. I started managing construction projects, like small little residential remodels and then bigger projects and then bigger projects. And then before I knew it, I was running our biggest projects and I was doing some operations and I was doing some entitlement work and... I looked around and there was nowhere else to go to. And I was still really young. Yep. And so then you you had an idea. I have the skills to get projects built and done. There's developers out there that could hire me. And now the company you run is I'm basically you're you're basically outsourced development. Like you are going to get a project done and you can do that in lots of different ways. That's right. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna role play for a little bit. I'm okay. the developer and I'm coming to hire you and I have this project. Maybe we could just start with like, what are the the projects that you maybe not enjoy most, but what are the ones you work on the most? Are you known for a certain type of project? We do a wide range, but I would say the thing that we end up doing the most are kind of large scale industrial repositioning. Okay. 
So that's what I do. Yes. Great. That we're meeting. That's what I do. Except that we're the ones that like you benefit from the supply constraints that we create. Okay. So we're taking that. We're we're taking industrial off the industrial market. Yeah. So we're taking, you know, usually sites that are typical example. We're working on one right now. It's 14 acres, 350,000 feet of industrial core Bay Area. So we're usually working in the city. Okay. And we're converting to higher and better use. Okay. And in most cases right now, that's that's biotech, life science, advanced manufacturing. Sometimes, or it used to be more creative office. Sometimes it's other things. That's a but, dirty word now. Yeah, it is. It is. Sometimes it's multifamily, which people love, right? Okay. That's that's a that's a nice word. <laughs> yep, that is a nice word. But creative office <laughs> is not so great right not, now. Not not great. Yeah. Okay, so I come to you and I say, I've got 350,000 feet. It's on 14 acres. What are the things that you're going to help me on throughout the project? A lot of times I'll come in very early. So we'll come okay. in and, and we'll actually help diligence the, the project. So okay. what, you know, what does it have in terms of utilities? What is the structure like? What is the environmental like? But we're always working on things that are that are kind of early level development. So where where are you at with the parcels? That's always an issue because you have these, on these big sites, they're almost never parcelized, right? They were like, it used to be 25 houses. At some point they got torn down and this big thing got built and that was never fixed. Mm. So we're, we're figuring out lot lines. We're figuring out utilities and, and how to maximize utilities. And then we're thinking through demising. How do you, you know, where should your main entrances be? Where should you move people through the space? And then we're building teams to do the construction. And, and, and so we're bringing in the architect. We're bringing in the consultants. We're figuring out what contractor is the best fit and overseeing all the construction. Why don't most developers just do this in-house? Like what have you, you've worked, we talked about, you've worked on hundreds of projects. Yes. Why is this, is there a skill that maybe some developers do this in-house and some don't like? I think most of them do in-house. Okay. But they're, sometimes they run out of capacity. Okay. So they've, they've acquired a bunch of stuff and they haven't built their team up. Right. Sometimes they have developed a lot recently and they really need their asset managers to be focused on leasing. Okay. Sometimes they, they were just, we're supplementing, but a lot of times they're, you know, they're calling us because we have the expertise and that frees up their teams to do other things. And, and how, like, how do y'all differentiate yourself in the market? Why are y'all, why are y'all different? So we really have three pillars that I think make us different. Okay. As you mentioned, we've had a lot of reps. So we've had sideline access to a hundred deals. Yep. The second one is design. And then the third one is we've kind of perfected this, this expertise of building just enough, which is kind of like minimum viable product for construction. Yep. So we can unpack those a little bit or I can run through let's them. Let's unpack them. Let's do it. Okay. So let's start with the first one. So reps. And you said you had this like database. Yes. I mean, we have seen so many projects and and partly that's because we're because of the role that we play in them. We're not deep in the weeds on every single one. So we're able to take on multiples. And so in that, we've seen all the myriad of ways that things can go wrong. And we've also seen the incremental decisions that lead to something going really right. Yeah. And I think what what that does for us is we've also well, okay, let me let me go back. We also see how different developers approach it. Okay. So 
people, you know, work in very different ways in this field. And we're able to see that. So we've seen, like, I've been able to look at all the ways that a project can get hung up in entitlements, in soils, in seismic. I've seen all the reasons that a tenant won't pay their first month's rent and how you get out of that. <laughs> I mean, many, many problems, right? We've stepped in a lot of holes. And so that's that's a big one. And I think in doing that, we're also getting real-time data. So we're seeing which brokers are, are closing deals, who's out in the market canvassing and bringing in good tenants. About six months ago, when construction lending really started tightening up, I think we were the first to see because we're doing we're doing lender draws and we see like they're coming back and they're asking for a lot more information. So then we were able to go to our other clients and our other projects and say, this is what's coming. We're going to spend a few extra hours and put together a better package to make sure that you get your payments on time. All right. Two things. Yeah. You said incremental decisions that basically pay off big. Can you give an example of something that maybe wouldn't seem obvious, but is something it's like, man, this to you is just second nature and it has huge value at? Planting trees. Number one. <laughs> Number one. I mean, if you go in and and day one, you plant 50 trees. Yeah. Day 700, your place looks like it's worth twice as much. There's just something about a canopied street that makes you think it's expensive. Yep. And industrial sites don't have it. And so as soon as you add that, it's night and day. If you're listening to this, this is why you don't have to be a genius to be in real estate. Literally just plant trees. Just plant trees. It's that easy. But it's true. It is. It's It's not, none of this is rocket science. It's just seeing things in the market that work and continuing to iterate on them. You're so right. If you talk to the best developers in the country, almost always, if you say like, if you had an extra X budget, where would you put it? You expect them to be like, oh, I'd get a nicer countertop or more. It's it's almost unequivocally the answer is more landscaping outside. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. The second thing you said, you said, I've seen every reason why a tenant won't pay their first month's rent. What would be a situation where it seems like it's obvious that they should have to pay, but maybe one little thing is off and so they're going to be able to withhold? Yeah, so I think when... We are often now we get to look at the lease, the lease work letters, and we are usually writing the lease work letters, and that helps. But earlier on, we would have projects where people would a work letter would be, I don't know, written by an attorney somewhere, and they would say something like remodel bathrooms. And you would have bathrooms that were perfectly fine that had been remodeled a year ago. And so what does that mean? It's not specific enough. And so then the tenant would come in and go, Well, you know, you you did these things, but but you didn't remodel the bathroom. And it's like well, we changed out the fixtures and we changed out the tile. Yeah, but you didn't change the light fixtures. You know, and so now I know, like, you just have to be incredibly specific. Like, you can't say remodel bathroom. You have to say replace tile and plumbing fixtures in bathroom one. It's it's really that straightforward. But if it's not in the lease, then yeah, everybody's going to push back. For sure. And they're just looking for an excuse, right? I mean, usually they're looking for an excuse. So I'd so. come to you and say, great, I've got this tenant and all we got to do is remodel the bathroom. And you would come back to me and say, let's just put a lot of detail in what that actually means exactly. before we call that forward. It's kind of a simplified version, but yeah. When I hear the word MVP, I think a most valuable player, you think of minimum viable project. I and do. you said- that is a huge value add because there's a lot of folks that will that will spend a lot, especially on like a biotech situation. Yes. So describe a situation where 
somebody's gone all the way and you're looking at it going, oh my gosh, you totally could have saved $2 million or whatever it is. Yes. That I think is is the number one value add that we provide to our okay. clients. And the way it usually works, especially in biotech, is no one understands what the scientists do, right? I mean, they, and so so when the scientist says, I want 800 amps at 480 volts, they tell the broker, the broker tells, tells the landlord, and normally then the construction team goes about figuring out how to get more power. Okay. What we do that's different is we go back to the scientists okay. and we say, can we look at your equipment list? Can we run through your load calcs? Is this peak load or is this live load? Is this, are you running equipment all night long, 24 hours, or are some of these only happening during the day when you have people working? So we're really picking apart and looking at every assumption and scaling back from there. And so if, once we really dig into it, it's like, oh, actually you don't need 800 amps. You need 500 amps and the building has six, so we're fine. Then if you take that to another example, like HVAC, if you ask a facilities guy, what, what kind of HVAC do you need? They're going to say, we need every, the whole space needs to be temperature controlled to within five degrees. Okay, well, then we go back and say, okay, well, looking at other projects we've done, you've got the shipping and receiving area that's going to have a roll-up door open. We're in a climate, you know, pretty climate neutral area. Like, <laughs> I bet that probably doesn't need to be climate controlled. So we go room by room and say, which ones really need it? And then next level, like, anti-static tile everywhere or in some places, waste separation everywhere or in certain rooms. You make you do that over a hundred decisions and you really start to descope the project. How come y'all have to call that out? Why would the architect not have known that or somebody else? Why does the buck stop with you? So consultants are always building in a safety factor. Okay. So there so if you go to the the mechanical engineer on this one, they're gonna say, well, they said they want it you know, controlled within five degrees. And then we want to make sure that you don't call us and say, hey, engineer, you designed it in this way. And so we have to go, we really have to kind of think like the, the building owner and then tell them like, look, these guys are willing to take a certain amount of risk. And they'll write a piece of paper that says, we're not going to call you if this goes wrong. If we get a call, we're not going to come blame you. But all of that all of those safety factors, all of all of that kind of building in all that cushion, if everybody does it every step of the way, suddenly you're up at 60% more than you need to be. And so I think it's just kind of the way our industry works. Nobody wants to get that call where they're getting blamed. So it's a little bit of like covering yourself, yeah. but it ends up adding unbelievable cost to a project. I think that's kind of the state of development in America today. Like you look back, somebody was telling me the other day, like the Empire State Building was built in 18 months. You look at pictures, there's people without hard helmets just hanging out in the middle of nowhere, 50 floors up in the air. Yeah. And now it's like what you just said. There's all these codes. There's all these regulations. There's all this risk. Nobody wants to screw up. So projects take way longer to build, way more expensive to build. And it seems like every year somebody's coming up with a new safety code. Because yes. one person might have done something and now a million buildings are going to be impacted by how they're built. Right. And and lawsuits. Right. Everyone is so afraid of being sued. And and so you you just have to release people from their liability and say, OK, if if it were your own project, like tell me tell me what it actually is without any of this added fluff. And then we'll come back to you and say, OK, add in a little bit more. But like, let's start with what what is the minimum viable project? 
And it's not that that's always what gets built. I mean, it's nice to then go, okay, now we brought it down enough that we can go back up a notch. Right. But what the typical process is that you you design the moon and the stars, you go and price it out. It's super expensive. You try to scale it back. You never get all that money back. And everyone feels like it's a compromise. It's messy and it's it's not necessary to work that way. And so I really like thinking about all of this on the front end mm-hmm. instead of trying to trying to pull back from something that is over designed. Okay. Well, you just said something that was on my mind. So the front end, when should I hire you as the developer? Like how early should you get on? Because what you said, nobody's ever, if they didn't go this way, seen their first budget come back off the plans they had been like, oh, this is great. This is perfectly in line. It's usually like you said, it's we dream big and then we just pull back. Yes. We want to be in very early. We, like how early? We're usually on a project. We're usually the first ones in. So we're okay. we're hiring the architects. We're hiring the consultants. We're, we're bringing in the contractors because you also want the right fit for the job. And I right. think a lot of folks don't know that if you don't have as many reps, you don't know. But like you don't want an architect that typically does 300 square foot for a 20 square foot building. Right, like right. It's you need someone who's scaled, whose business is scaled properly for the project. And is the owner usually high or the developer, or is it maybe the architect that a developer was talking to brings you in? Or are you mainly being hired by the mainly by the owner investor? Yeah, by the by the developers. One quick sidebar: it made me think what you were talking about with risk. Yes. Wasn't there a building in San Francisco like five years ago, a huge tower that started leaning? Yes, it's it's still happening. Okay, from your perspective, so like. We don't have to go too much into it, but all I remember, I remember thinking this has to be the biggest nightmare ever. Yes. This is a skyscraper in downtown. Yes. That's now leaning or something. Yeah. With very high end residences, like some of the most expensive units that were sold. And is the whole building vacant now or can people still live in it? I, I, you know, I don't know. I haven't heard anything about it lately, but I don't think the last I heard it hadn't been stabilized. It says here as of June of 23 um, they spent a hundred million dollars to address the sinking and tilting issues and that it has been fixed oh okay good on them okay so from your perspective now yes what happened there do you even have a perspective on it i mean i assume it's a soils issue but i don't know okay i don't know enough about that one but i know that usually if if you're if you end up with foundation problems it's something with the soils and how what what type of foundation you were looking at so where i'm getting at with this because we used to develop a lot because you have architects you have engineers yes you have consultants and sometimes it can get really tricky of like who is actually accountable for what definitely so from your perspective how do y'all work to understand where accountability lies throughout the project because i think great developers understand that and people that you've talked to that have developed for the first or second time they don't really know who came up with what and how the decision was made it's just kind of you know the engineers start working with the architects late who work with the consultants too late how do you guys like fit into that to where everybody's kind of lined out and you know who's accountable for what we're normally writing all of that scope so we're okay. we're coming in early enough that we are we're saying this is where the architect what their scope is, this is the structural engineer, this is the civil, this is landscape. And so we're kind of building building that out and putting that into the contracts. Okay. 
going back to minimum viable project, is there certain parts of a project where it is most obvious that you can save money? Is it usually like big mechanicals and structural things, or is it people have just over-designed for things they don't need? It's it, the first one. It normally is big mechanical and structural. Okay. So a lot of times we're working with bow truss buildings and people show equipment on the roof. Yep. And, you know, bow trusses can't handle equipment on the roof, but you also have land. So like, let's just take that equipment and put it on the ground. Yeah. Pretty basic. But it's it that's just not where people start. They For start sure. with equipment on the roof. So so then that backs out a lot of structural. The other thing that we can do is is what a lot of multifamily developers do is is look at your floor plan and how are how are your rooms grouped. So you you always want to have plumbing back to back, but you also want to have if you What's have that mean? you want to have wet walls, share share walls. So if you okay. like in apartments, you you have like your bathrooms are back to back or your kitchens are back to back. So if like if you have two units, you're oh, sharing yeah. one set of plumbing. Yeah, yeah. And okay. so we're doing that same thing in labs where if you have two rooms, you want your plumbing back to back so that you're not you're minimizing the number of runs. And then the same with HVAC. If you have rooms that are the same temperature control, you want them grouped together. Is lab space evolving or has it always been kind of the same? Or I know nothing about lab space, but it's, this is a niche that you have mastered. It's a very interesting market. You you would be amazed how many people tell me, like, I have no I have no concept that this is even is an, an asset class. Yeah. It has changed some, but really every every project is different mm -hmm. because we're doing everything from batteries, which you can have no water because it's lithium, right? So like no water in the fire sprinklers. I mean, everything is dry, dry rooms instead of clean rooms. Everything is about humidity control. And then, you know, all the way to the other end of like bioreactors and fermentation where it's all water and it's all drains. And every project is kind of learning a new business. But it's also cool because it's like looking into the future. Like these people are building such incredible stuff. Yeah. And you get to, to see it and and kind of be a part of it. Is there, okay, I think this is a, a moment to, to we're gonna talk more about bio, but I think it's a good time to say, how would you describe what's going on in the markets right now? I, let's call it the Bay Area, San Francisco, Oakland, since, you know, we're in 2023, like how do you describe the market as, as in your, you can say it broadly, but then maybe niche down into kind of what you focus on. So, I think a lot of the we know the office market is really struggling. Yeah. San Francisco office market is particularly struggling. And there are a couple of reasons for that. So they San Francisco about eight years ago made a real bid to get more tech companies in. Historically, tech was South Bay and San Francisco proper was finance and insurance and healthcare. They wanted the tech. So right. they recruited it, they did tax breaks. They all moved in, rents went up, all those companies moved over to the East Bay. And so And real quick, East Bay is what a tourist like me, that's kind of yes, where I would that's hang out. Oakland. Okay. You know, East Bay is like Oakland, Berkeley, okay, San Leandro. Okay. Um, you probably wouldn't go there. You wouldn't cross that bridge. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so San Francisco also does not have hardly any residential downtown. Whereas okay. if you look at Oakland, tons of residential mixed in with the commercial. So you kind of have this perfect storm of abandonment of a space. So you don't have anybody living there. And then now you have all of the tech workers who are saying, we're not going back to the office. So you have, what are eight city blocks that are just empty in a space that used to be the bustling core financial district. Literally like four or five years ago. Literally, yeah. 
I mean, just like you, like I used to commute there a long time ago and, and like you're fighting for space on the sidewalk. It's New York yeah. City. Like you're like shoulder to shoulder during commute hours and you're like, well, this person, please move. And now it's empty. The, the restaurants are closed because they all served the office workers. And so what's happening is prices are dropping considerably. So there's a couple, there are three kind of big buildings. One, 60 Spear was a nice office building, just closed. I think it closed around 260 a foot. Mm. You and, know, and previously probably traded like close to a thousand. Close a foot. to a thousand a foot. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, there's another 550 California that's in contract right now, and it's rumored that it's going to close around 120 a foot. Mm. Not as nice of a building, but still like a nice building, you know, yep. downtown. So I'm kind of looking like the only other market I know really well is Tulsa. I'm like, that's Tulsa prices. So would you rather have the old Highland Dairy <laughs> or would you rather have downtown San Francisco Financial District? It's it's incredible. To me, it's a huge opportunity. I think that it's like a real sale. Is there anything going on at the government level locally that is there any is there light at the end of the tunnel? Like anything that that you maybe know about or things that we should know about that says there is this is going to get turned around and there is people working on it or is it still just kind of purgatory? There are a lot of people working on it and I do think there's a real tide shift that's occurring Good. right now. There's there's a couple of different things. There's in the past 2 years we've had a ton of state legislature that's come down and said all of these small cities and all these places that made it hard to build for the last 30 years and now we're paying the consequences, you guys can't do that anymore. You have to build new housing. You have to build a percentage and you have to do it by the state and you have to show us, demonstrate how you're going to do it and change your zoning laws. And that has been huge Mm -hmm. because what's happening is if you have a project that your city is saying is giving you a lot of pushback on, you if it meets the requirements, you can just go to the state and they'll approve it. They'll and go. They just override it. They override. Mm-hmm. How quickly? Fast. I mean, usually within a couple months. Okay. So if, if I know you're in Oakland and the Bay Area, but I want to finish talking about this. I, I loved that area of San Francisco so much. I can like picture it. It's magical. So there are these buildings. Any idea what people are going to do with them? Is it going are they going to stay office or are they going to try and do a different use? I mean, I think for a while, everyone was going through this exercise of of what do we do with these buildings? Do we tear them down? Do we make them residential? But everybody's going back to the office. I mean, okay. it, it, it it feels, you know, Zoom announced <laughs> that they're going back to the office. It feels like we're that's the direction we're heading. Whether people listen, whether you, whether you like it, you agree with it. I think that's I think that's where we're going. So I imagine it will just take some time and maybe some of the smaller ones will get converted to something else because if you have small enough floor plates it can work the historic buildings that are a little smaller that get good light but these big behemoths that are a full city block i don't know what what else you do with them i think you just wait i can only speak for myself but i don't know how people sit on zoom all day i'd rather oh. i'd rather be in person with people 100 percent. oh my I gosh am, i am not myself <laughs> on zoom i'm just not i'm not i'm I, i'm not focused on. I'm not as present as I am when I'm right in front of someone. This podcast would be totally different if it was over Zoom. It's just the the in-person conversations. I, I think if I can get them in person, it's the best way to do them. And I think that is, transcends pretty much every situation where you're with somebody, you're talking to somebody. Yeah. My, my first is in person. My second is phone. I think like a distant <laughs> third. <laughs> Zoom. Zoom. Text, email. Yes. 
uh, smoke yeah. signals, yes. then zoom. Yes. On that topic, do you have an opinion on Resi or Office to Resi? I know it's like case by case, deal by deal, but in your view of the world, is this even possible to do with most properties? Or is it like if you can get the building cheap enough, then you can afford to put the money in that it would take to actually turn these into residential units? I think on a small enough building, you you can make them work, but that's not a typical office building. Yeah. You know, most the office buildings that we're worried about are the class B or class C, like big, big, you know, 80s fixtures. They need a lot of work anyway, but yeah. those are too, the floor plates are too big. You can't get light into the interior of the units. No way. I mean. Because you can't really build an atrium or. We've done, so we've done a couple of industrial to multifamily and on those we're, we're cutting out light, you know, big uh, holes through the center of the buildings. And that works when you're talking about three or four stories. But when you get up to 14, 15, you're, what do you, you get light right at noon. It's like you're. You know, you're the vampire. It, like, it, I don't think it works. I think also structurally, it's a lot more complicated. the The industrial buildings have very clear pillars. It's it's easy to see where you can cut out and what you can lose. How are they doing multi and industrial buildings? Is it just one store units? Yeah, single story unit. Typically, sometimes they're two story, but usually they're okay. single story units. They're loft feel, so it still has a lot of the industrial, you know, concrete floors. You know, you've got like the big steel windows that we love, and they're usually kind of open, very open floor plan. So think like a studio, but with super high ceilings and they're coming for you. They're, they're going to take your industrial buildings. Somebody I was talking to about the office to Resi and, and the, the argument a lot of times is, yeah, you cannot get light back there. Right. And his recommendation, which I thought was smart, but maybe you can poke a hole in this was how many units do you ever have where maybe you could build like a 600 square foot storage facility in the back towards the interior of the building? Because if you go to any other apartment on the planet, you're not getting storage. You may have a little closet or you're renting a storage somewhere else. He said th these might actually be more attractive to people because you could put a almost garage size storage unit for mm -hmm. people to have. Is that viable? Again, on a small enough building. But yeah. if you're talking about a full city block. You know, yeah. a typical unit is 30 feet deep. Yeah. So you come in all sides on 30 feet and then you still have 300 in the middle. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot of storage. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> maybe you're, maybe you're renting it out separately. Maybe you're vertical farming. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> vertical farming data centers. Data I've heard centers, data centers yes. might work, but you don't want a bunch of great class A old shells of buildings with just servers in them. No. It still just kills the fabric of the community. It does. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting. I, I, I'm not sure how it's all going to play out. I think what happens is if enough of the smaller buildings get converted to resi, then the bigger buildings are now more in demand because now you've pulled more office off the market. And so the office that's left, prices will go up. So is so prices are down, prices obviously, are down. for office. Yes. Is the investment appetite, again, you get to talk to lots of brokers, equity, developers, like what's the sentiment? Is it San Francisco, which to be fair, had gotten really expensive. Yes. It's probably good that it's a little more affordable and probably ripe for a lot of great investment. Definitely. Is that what you're seeing? It seems like investors are excited about it. Um, there's a lot of interests from East Coast. Okay. But lenders aren't lending on it. Okay. And so that's I'm not sure lenders are lending on anything, but they're certainly <laughs> not lending on office. In San Francisco. Right. And so that is an issue. But vacancy is is still high compared to most cities. So I think that there's 
that's giving some people pause. Yeah. But, you know, there are people with cash. They're figuring it out. Okay. So we talked about San Francisco. If you go across the bridge, there's Oakland. Mm-hmm. Is it a different environment over there or same or? It is different. Oakland has always been cheaper than okay. San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco office kind of set the market for rates in our in our area. And so when not that great industri- East Bay Industrial was 300 a foot, that's because San Francisco office was 900 a foot, right? So they're related. So it's really going to be interesting to see what happens now because okay. our, our top of the mark has fallen significantly. Okay. And the brokers will tell you they're different asset classes. They're not connected. I don't buy it. Yeah, they're they're connected. We don't know how yet. We haven't we haven't had enough transaction volume to know how they're connected, but we know they are. Yep. And so I expect that prices will fall everywhere. I mean, it's interesting because Oakland didn't have as much of a it doesn't have as much of a ghost town feeling as downtown San Francisco because you have these other industries that didn't work from home. You have insurance. You have healthcare. You have a lot more residential mixed in with the office. Um, so it hasn't felt as dead, but it's it still has issues in, in much of the same way. Like we're still dealing with a lot of homelessness and a lot of crime. And that's there's been a real political shift in that front, too, where people are they've really had enough. And is and that's but the the homelessness, the crimes kind of concentrated it in is. certain pockets, it's not Definitely. like rampant all over the city. No. I mean, we talked about that. You're like in most areas, it's vibrant. It's beautiful. There's a lot going on. Oh, my gosh. Like keep talking doom and gloom, people. It's bringing my prices down. But I will tell you <laughs> from from boots on the ground that the sun is shining. People are sitting on patios. They're eating tacos and drinking margaritas and they're doing just fine. Isn't there like an Instagram account? of the fog that has like a million followers yes. or something. Carl, Carl the fog. The fog. Mm-hmm. Is he still, or is he still a celebrity out in the Bay yes. area? Yeah. He's, he's still there with us. You know, now, now it's like the doom fog, right? The doom <laughs> fog. I think San Francisco, the Bay area is literally one of the, my favorite places I've been. I haven't been in years, but when I was single, I was telling you earlier, like I loved being out there. It's, it's really magical. It yeah. has something something special around like it just draws so many entrepreneurs yep. and, and people who are who have big ideas who are building really interesting things and there's this feeling that anything is possible yep and i think that's hard to find in other places that that just that feeling that everyone around you is super ambitious and you, and you see it play out i mean you see people who like they got here three years ago and now they're IPOing and you're like, whoa, what just yeah. happened? I mean, <laughs> you just got here from Indiana. Like I met you at a party and now, now you know, it, it happens so fast. Uh, but there's also something to the Bay Area that I think I think people don't think about when they're picturing or talking about the doom and gloom. Yeah. But it is it's the only place I've been where you have access to nature within such a close proximity to the city. And so, you know, you think about Oakland, I'm sure you have an image in your mind, but Oakland has... I've actually never been to Oakland. Oh, okay. Well... I think of the Oakland Athletics. That's what I think about. Because when I grew up, I had an Oakland A's hat. And that's about the extent of what I think about Oakland. That is the most positive version I have have heard from almost anyone. There's an image and it's usually not that. Okay. But the reality is we have... And you had the Raiders. Right. We had the Raiders. Yeah. Now we have, we're about to have no teams. Okay. The A's leaving too? The A's are leaving. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's not done, done, but it's, it's pretty much. Okay. It's pretty much done. All right. I'm going to tell you what's great about Oakland. We have 19 miles of coastline. We have okay. over 100,000 acres of parks. I mean, major, major parks. Like, it's like National Park in your backyard in the city limits. 
And <laughs> you just don't get that anywhere. I mean, there are miles and miles and miles of trails. And for me, you know, I'm still like a little country mouse, city mouse. Like I like to be able to get into the woods and it's so easy to do. It's, it's you're, you're at the ocean in 10 minutes, you're at the woods in 10 minutes. I mean, maybe you can do that in a couple of other cities, but it's very special. All right. Now we've set the stage. So you've built a remarkable developer consulting business, construction consulting. You've worked on hundreds of projects. Prices have come down. The Bay Area is not out. It's, it's, it's in transition. The Phoenix always has to rise again. That's right. And the thing that we've been talking a lot about both at Capital Camp and earlier today was just a lot of the opportunity that you see that you kind of want to move the business onto the equity side of the business. You said, I've seen the value I've created for a lot of people, and I know I can go create it for myself and my investors. So I want to talk through what some projects might look like that would be deals that you would want to be doing. Because I'm an industrial, there's no lab space or biospace here. So it's kind of familiar, but kind of not. So I just want to talk through some examples of like how this might work. I do think we've had a lot of access. And and to be fair, the the intention all along with my company was to do our own developments. Okay. But they're very capital intensive. I mean, the Bay oh. Area prices are expensive. And Don't say it's not cheap. It's not. And and I'm not coming from Except a place. Except you did buy a little place on the river that was a pretty did, good deal. I did get a good deal on <laughs> I did get a good deal on that. It's it's tough. It's a tough place to start. Okay. Right. And so. Why? Because of the pricing. Because and- of the pricing. And because it's a very sophisticated market. There's a lot of competition. And so if there's anything that, that looks a little bit like a deal, somebody's going to grab it. Yep. And and so where we're at is what we started doing was was entitlement work. So we started buying land off our balance sheet. Okay. It's an easier way to get access. It's cheaper. Like there was a point where you could get land pretty cheap. So we were buying land. Where? Mostly in Oakland. And like what type of land? Mix. We were trying to buy lots that were zoned for multi that okay. that were being underutilized, either, you know, one house or nothing on them. So we were buying the land by the square foot. We were spending two years in titling, and then selling them by the unit. Okay, let's pause. Yes. Walk me through how that works, because I think that's that in and of itself is a fascinating way to invest. I've been there doing it how we do it in Texas, but there's a lot of value to be created if you can get the entitlements. There is. So how did you look at the project going into it? Mm-hmm. What happened over two years? And then you said, I bought it on a square foot, but I sold it on a per unit. How does all that work? I started looking at land. I b- bought a couple of small lots at tax auction. So that was kind of my first. I just did it um, on my own. Like, let me try this out. And those turned out really well. So then I started with our company's money, like using our balance sheet. What happened that was really fortuitous is Oakland passed a vacant parcel tax. Okay. And that's a $6,000 yearly tax on vacant land. And so the the tax comes about... It comes in early December. So think like right before the holidays, you get a bill that you didn't know was coming for $6,000. Okay. And so- No matter how big the land is. No matter how big it is. Okay. So where we started was looking at, we started doing lists of people that have recently inherited land and we would call them about a week after that bill comes. And, you know, and they were always surprised. So, So we started cold calling basically new owners of land, people who had inherited a piece of property 
they haven't wanted to deal with or somehow they came they came into it and they're getting their first bill. Sometimes they'll pay the first one, but they certainly don't want to pay the second one. So we're also calling second years. So we started picking up land cheap because people were a little bit in distress and were kind of just bothered by the whole thing. Oh. Our team is used to doing entitlement works, entitlement work for other developers. And so for us, it became a little bit of filler. Like if we had a little time and we're working on something similar, like bring this one in and we'll do it at the same time. Okay. So we were doing, you know, we were designing usually multifamily and then getting all the way through planning approval and then actually building approval too. So we're, we're getting shovel ready projects. With plans with that you plans could build. that you could build. And we didn't have the capital to build them, but we knew that they were buildable, good projects. And we would sell them to people who wanted a buildable, good project and didn't have two years to wait. And so at that point in the cycle, we're not there now, by What the way, year was that? We sold most of the land between 2018 and 2021. Okay. Yeah. So we were doing like maybe one or two of those a year for a while. Would you then sell it to them and then stay on the project in some capacity or they would just buy the plans a lot, the permits, and they were off to the races? Most of the time, they they would buy and, and go do it themselves. On two, we stayed on and helped with some design and some construction management. Were all the lots that you bought, did you see a clear pathway to getting entitlements or was there some entitlement risk in there? I saw a clear path on all of them. Yeah. We don't really have rezone, so all, all the zoning is by right. But it is messy, so it's the code is very long, and you have to look into a lot of details. But once you can figure out every area that says you have the right to do it, you just have to document that and show them. Why I love your business so much and why I think investing with you would be really interesting, because I can speak to having developed here, and maybe you can just give a little bit of insight in this, is even if I moved to Oakland tomorrow, and you gave me your whole company's file and I just somehow digested it. Even if I walked into City Hall and, d- and the only thing I didn't have was relationships. I had everything else but no relationships. And, and, so, and forgive me, I love San Francisco, I love the Bay Area, but when I think of areas that would be really difficult to in- develop in, which is also why there's so much opportunity, it's places like the Bay Area, New York City, Vancouver, these highly dense areas. Yes. You can you can pat yourself on the back or brag a little bit here. How important is it of the the decade of relationships that you've built there that is kind of almost like a moat? It's priceless. Yeah, it really is. It if you if you were to say like, okay, I I gave you my file and I and you're gonna go and you're gonna you're gonna submit online, and no one's ever gonna look at it for seven or eight months, yeah. and you you have to know who to talk to to get things moving. You want to steer it to the right people because there are people who do get things done, but you only know that by trying a lot of times and having it not get done. And then you have to know who to go to when it gets stuck. And all of that just just takes a lot, just takes a lot of reps. It just takes doing it. I mean, it does. People ask me all the time, like, you know, is there some, is there some like magic to the entitlement work? It's just volume. It's just that we're we're doing so much more of it than anyone else that we see the minute a code changes, we see it. The minute the way that they process something changes, we see it. And so we're able to apply that to the 30 or 40 other projects we're entitling. It's it it just becomes straightforward purely because of volume. And I don't and and, and there's so many great folks that, that work up at the city um in all these cities. But I think one thing that, that people forget is 
Nobody at the city is being bonused extra if a project happens. No. So the timeline often at the city is not motivated by the same timeline as maybe yours or a developer, which is I got to get paid. Right. And they're all understaffed. Yeah. And so what happens is they get 15 projects across their desk and 14 of them are straightforward and they move on and one needs a supervisor to review a thing. So it gets set in a pile. And then the next day they get 15 more and that one gets something stacked on top of it. And it just goes like that. And so you've got this like percentage of projects that just just get they, they're just sitting on somebody's desk. They're not being reviewed. And you don't know it if you don't know what the typical timelines are supposed to be. So the other thing is you can't go in and say it's been in for a week. You know, where where is it? You have to be able to to know, hey, I've done a bunch of these. I'm normally getting something in three weeks. It's been three and a half. Can you look into it? It's why I'm really bullish on, I, I tweeted about the other day, operators. But in your case, if you're investing with somebody or doing a project with somebody where a lot of the value is in relationships, it's one thing to buy an industrial building in Texas. Like, yeah, we need relationships to get the deal done, but there's not this additional level of 10 years of relationships to pull something off. So you are, one, able to look at something very unique way. Two, you're able to probably get something done that no matter how smart Johnny is over here, if he moves to San Francisco, it's just going to take him. You got to be there for 10 years. Yeah. I mean, we also have a really great database that has every plan check comment we've ever gotten. (laughs) And so what we're able to do is review the plans before they go into the city and say, on a project of this type, we've seen them come back with these 10 comments. Why don't you guys go back? Add in, like, pretend as if you just got these comments, add that information in, send it back. That often saves us months in review because we're not having to send them back through again. Okay, we're going to get to what a a deal might look like, but we're going to go real quick back to just land entitlement. And you had a tweet that said land entitlement is the closest path I found to basically creating money out of thin air. And what you meant is you buy something and maybe you can build one unit on it. But if you can then get it entitled to build five units on it, the value of the land is infinitely more, even though you haven't moved any dirt or put a stake in the ground. Exactly. Exactly. So you're 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 going in price. I mean, I've seen people do it on in a lot of different ways, but the way that that we're doing it is it's just that we're buying it on a per square foot and we're selling it on a per unit. But think some people will buy a building and then partner with someone on like, okay, if this gets entitled up to this height, I'll split that with you 50-50. Nobody's building anything in that scenario. I mean, hmm. it's not that there aren't costs. There's, you know, there's money that goes into permitting and we're paying our team. But for us, it being in-house, it's relatively inexpensive for us to do that. And you you literally haven't moved a shovel. Yeah. So... Okay, let's okay, we've talked about land investing, but let's talk about maybe some of these conversion projects or let's go through maybe some of the things that are appearing to start becoming interesting that you think there's a lot of upside in. Awesome. So, our main project that we do is some type of industrial conversion. Okay. We're normally working on things that are pretty big square footage, 2 to 400 square feet. Okay. We're looking at doing that same project but on a smaller scale to start. Okay. And um, the idea for us is looking at things that are like twenty to fifty thousand feet, okay. somewhere around there to begin. Um, mainly from a from a capital perspective, we're yeah. trying to find we're trying to make sure that we have partners that we're really aligned with, and in doing that, we want to we want to start small and and grow from there. And so 
our our ideal project, twenty to fifty thousand feet. Okay. Industrial. What's core. what's the building like the day you buy it? Pretty bad. Okay. Usually. <laughs> usually. The worse the better. The, the worse the better. Yeah, okay. because we're gonna redo it. So yeah. we like industrial tilt ups. We like those those make good conversions. We like things that have some character because we're we're really into preserving and and holding on to some of the the pieces. That's, Industrial that's, tenants deserve character too. You know, we we'll get into the design later. There's okay. a, there's a whole component of design that people ignore in industrial that I okay. think they should not ignore. Okay. But we we're looking for something that has land, so we want a big site. In most places, you you don't pay a lot more for the land. You're paying on a price per square foot for the building. And then the land is just kind of extra. That's, Why do you want the land parking? I want the land for future entitlement. Okay. So yeah, what I'm what I'm looking at is I want our projects to essentially be a covered land play mm-hmm. for this cycle, and 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 a vertical in the next cycle. Okay. And so we are, you know, we we know how to get good cash flow on these projects, especially the biotech. I think we have a good, um, we have a really good niche in doing that. We know how to build it inexpensively. And the rents are good. The rents are are solid. So, you know, if we're just a very typical example, if we're buying at 200 a foot, we're putting 100 into it. At the low end, we're renting for 350 a square foot a month. And then it goes up from there. It's so, so funny, no matter where you are in the country, y'all do it on a per month. Uh, yeah. I would say, oh, it's $10 a foot, but that's over and a year. Y'all always quote months. Month. Yeah. Okay, so you're in all... So bio would pay three fifty plus nets. Yeah, so three fifty triple nets. So that's like a you know that's what a fourteen cap. Yeah, or you know unlevered yield. That's pretty good. Yep. And that's like we can do that project over and over again. I mean, maybe not. Yeah. The exact details, but yeah, that project exists and and is out there. And how would you source this building? It, how come nobody if how come nobody else would see it that way? I think because back to our overbuilding, I think most people think of the only way to build biotech hmm. is to spend 300 a foot and yeah. we're not doing that. I think we're there those people are also getting higher rents. So if you're spending 300 a foot, maybe you're getting 6 or 7. Yeah. We're looking at if you have smaller buildings, we're building them out on spec and the idea is that you have smaller tenants. So think like businesses that are coming like little startups that are coming out of the Berkeley incubators. They need space right away. They can't wait 18 months for permits. They need a certain amount of things in the labs, but we're used to what they're looking for. They want areas that are clean, washable. They need hoods. They need sinks. They need drains. And so we're kind of building those on spec. We're usually multi-tenanting. And then the idea is, is a little bit, I, I guess, like, like VC, where one grows and takes over the building and the other's go out of business and along the way people build out your site more and more so it's more and more valuable do do labs work where it's like if one lab focused on this cool biotech thing goes there then the building usually fills out with other biotechs in the similar yes they love to cluster okay and they and they really want to be in certain neighborhoods and so we have these giant printed zoning maps and they show us where we're allowed to build the type of project that we want but then we also overlay those with what are good sites for entitlement? What what sites are allow you to go very tall and very dense? And then we overlay that with opportunity zones, <laughs> state laws. So we have these like layered maps. And from that, we end up with this kind of small area of sites that we're targeting. 
and then there's a guy on our team, Noah, and he he just calls those people and goes and knocks on their doors and calls brokers when sites in the in that range come up, and uh, that's how we're sourcing. I I'm gonna sound like an idiot. There's probably some biotech and DFW. I'm so removed from it. What is how big is the biotech industry? Is it growing? Like, what's the state of biotech in your market? In in the Bay Area, it's really it's it's big. It's mostly I'd say it's mostly Bay Area, L.A. Boston. Okay. And why? Because there's universities. <laughs> universities. There? Okay. Yeah. Starting to be a little bit more in Research Triangle Park. I think there's a little bit in Austin. It's not in most markets. I mean, there are plenty of markets that that it's not in at all, but it's it's really about talent and where the talent is and, and where people are building companies. Okay. I'm probably asking this for the second time because we kind of talked about it when we were just talking about more the service side of the business. But will you repeat why can you all build biotech cheaper? Is it more from the minimum viable project? Like, you know what people actually need and you don't do all the fluff? Or is there something else that you're bringing to the table that allows you to basically create more value, create these spaces where other people can't? It starts with minimum viable project. It, that's that's the beginning of it. But if we're if we're building on spec, what we have found is that if you build a space on spec, people will take it. Yeah. If you allow someone to customize it, they will customize it till their heart's content. And so part of it is we're building something that we know will generally work and we're leasing it as is. So yeah. you take it. If you think that you need three hoods instead of one, you can get yourself That's two like more TI. hoods. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do the people that lease or the tenant reps and the leasing brokers usually specifically in this industry or it, they could be representing any type of industry and sometimes it's biotech or is it niche even within the broker community? It's pretty niche even within the broker community. There are a couple of, yeah, there are a handful of brokers that focus just on these deals. Okay. You, you talked about cleanliness, safety, dry areas, clean areas, all these. Is there anything else that comes to mind that's like biotech tenants need this that no other tenant really needs? Is it Venahoods? It's, it's almost always airflow. Okay. So because they're dealing with hazardous materials. Because of COVID or that's always been the It's way. always been the case. Okay. It's mainly about hazardous materials. So they are generally working with some level of controlled substances. And okay. so they'll tell you, these are the substances that I'm working with that are controlled. These, these are the safety requirements around them. And, and so these rooms need different ventilation. Sometimes it's 100% outside air. Sometimes it's a certain number of air changes. So it's it's about how you recycle the air based on their individual chemicals. Okay. We've talked about all the, maybe not boring stuff. Maybe that's interesting to some people, but I have an all caps with a line design. <laughs> Everyone wants to hear about design. Biotech people care about design. Everyone and cares that about matters? design. Really? Everyone cares about design, Te Chris. Teach me a lesson I didn't know. Yeah. So we found very early on that we were doing these projects. People were spending a bunch of money. And at the end, it's not a place that you want to be. Yeah. And I'm a salvage girl. I don't like waste. It felt wasteful, right? It just felt wasteful. It felt inefficient that we're spending all this money on something that is frankly ugly at the end of the day. And so we really started design as a service so that these places would stop looking like that. And it and it took off. It's been something that I, I'm kind of surprised by. But we have these buildings that have never had someone you know, if design gets thought about at all in an industrial commercial building, it's definitely an afterthought and it's usually way at the back. But the way that we approach them is we want to go in very early and we want to find a couple of, 
every building has some magic. So we want to figure out what are the what are those what are those pieces that we can maintain. I think it was uh, John Marsh who was saying like the the demo guy needs to be like the most skilled person on your team. Mm-hmm. We're we're definitely aligned on that. We <laughs> we think that like I mean our guys know if they uncover some cool old tile or some interesting corbels, they stop. Yep. They send us pictures. We run over there and say, okay, this is worth saving. Every building has something. And you need those you need those pieces because you need the gravitas that they provide. If you if you just have everything new, it's like it's like an IKEA showroom. Like it's poppy, it's nice, but there's no heft soul. to it. There's no soul. And so we start we start with that. Okay. And then we come in and we take a couple of magic moments. It's what are you what's your tour path gonna be? What are you gonna see when you walk in? And then what's gonna draw you into the space? Yeah. So we want to we want to bring you into whatever the nicest part of the space is. And so it's sometimes it's only a couple of things. It doesn't cost a lot of money. We're not we're not doing high high end design. We're taking very basic materials and using them in an interesting way. And we're using a lot of color and a lot of light. And so you have these big huge, you know, industrial spaces, you know, you're looking you're standing in a space that's 50,000 feet. You want something way over on the back wall that's going to bring you in. And that has to be like saturated color because everything else is white and concrete. Yeah, You need something that differentiates it, that makes people feel like someone here cares. So you're telling me that biotech people are humans too? You know, it turns out (laughs) 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 they spend all day in these really sterile environments. And when they come out, they actually don't want that. Okay, so you said bring me in. So that'd be like tile patterns. You said light, maybe not murals or maybe murals. Yeah, maybe but... murals, color. I, I, to me, the worst thing that you can do in commercial design is mimic residential design. You okay. know, particularly now, like residential design is like, let's make everything super muted and and very, like, very neutral. I'm a maximalist. I want, like, I want bold. I want a lot of color. I want super saturated colors. I want good light. I want it bright. I want it to feel energetic when you walk in. I want you to go like, wow, I've never seen anyone. I've never seen anything that looks like this. And the problem with that is there's always someone who thinks it's too much. And so you have to be really careful who you show it to, right? You have to like, if as soon as it gets on like design by committee and one person says, I don't know, I think that uh, it gets watered down yeah. and watered down until it's just garbage. You and my wife would be best friends. We oh, have a loud house. I can't wait to there, meet her. There's no mute at our yes, house. Yes, I love that. See, it's um, like... And I, I came from maybe the more the mute world, so I've I've had to become a, a convert. I've been converted over the last 10 years. And how does it feel? It's good. Right? It's colorful. She would tell you it's bright. It's happy. Yes, <laughs> right? Why not have happy space? Why do we need sad space? I mean... I think a lot of this, like, we don't want to work in an office. It's like, we don't want to work in sad space. That's That is true. It's, I think a lot of what the problem is, and, and I agree, you walk into some buildings and your soul dies the minute you get in the parking they're lot. They're terrible. Yeah. Like those fluorescent lights, the buzzy, the like, oh, it's just bad. So does design work? I, it's probably all the above. It helps spaces lease faster. Maybe you get a little more rent, but it's something that you, from what you found, most developers in this space totally neglect. 100%. They definitely neglect it. And we've we found almost immediately that if we put a little time and energy into it, spaces lease so much faster. And I don't know if they really bring more rents. I'm I'm not sure, but I know they I know they fly off the market. Hey, an empty building is is just eating cash. So okay. 
So we buy a building. Yes. It's not a great looking building. It probably has some land attached to it or, yes. or extra space. You're going in, you're redoing the bones, you're building out spec lab space. Maybe a good question here is, do you all build it to where it's move-in ready or do you get to like a white box shell but still keep dollars or something available knowing we'll have to at least customize this a little bit once the tenant gets here? On, on smaller scale projects, we're building move-in ready. We're doing turnkey spaces. Okay. What we've done for other groups on, on bigger properties is like, we'll build out like the office on spec and maybe one lab so they can move in and then they're building out their the rest of their labs. Okay. But the projects we're looking at smaller and we're we're pretty agnostic about project type. Like I I will do, you know, we've done a bunch of these like industrial to multifamily. Yeah. There's just not as much meat on the bone yeah. there as there is in in the lab space, but we're looking at all types of, you know, that that similar type of projects, some kind of industrial conversion that's in the city. But market expert First yes. and foremost, yes. I think you told me like there's not a corner in Oakland that I could mention that you couldn't tell me something about. Oh, I mean, you give me an intersection, I, I'm like a savant. It's it's <laughs> almost a curse, but there's you know there there's definitely like everything that's sold. I can tell you you know when what it traded for, who bought it, what they've done with it since then. You know, maybe even if they're in trouble today, which a lot of people are. Yep. Okay, so the market's kind of opening up. Are there a lot of these opportunities available? Are they hard to come by? There are more and more coming there. I've seen more in the last six months than I had in probably the last three years. Yeah. So it's it's definitely the opportunities are coming. And I think it's it's we're not quite like it, we haven't cap rates haven't quite caught up with interest rates, but we're on the way. Yeah. So I think, you know, maybe there's still some room for things to come down as these things transact and we start to get a little bit more comps, you know, where, where we should be landing price per square foot. And it's the best way to lease these because you're obviously going to have a set of design plans done is, is the best way to lease these once it's done, then bring it to market or are, are lab spaces usually out far enough in advance? Like, well, maybe first question, how far out in advance do labs start looking for space? Is it like on demand or they're usually out in the market a year in advance? Big companies are out a year in advance okay. because they need a lot of customization. Yep. Small companies are like they're looking for space next week. And, and are we living in a world where there's a lot more small companies now because of the innovation going on in biotech or it's always been about the same? I think it's I think it's always been about the same. I think we'll probably have a little bit of shrinking because yeah. VC is slowing down. down. There was so much money pouring into it for so long. Yep. And I think that that's starting to contract. So Oops. I expect we'll see a little slowdown. Would you want to start leasing these before completion or would you want to complete them so that nobody's coming in and screwing with your, you know, your plans and adding costs? You want to get the minimum viable product done and then kind of bring it to market. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the like building a spec home. Right. Like build it and then sell it. Oh, I mean, so if, it doesn't turn into a custom home. Exactly. I mean, the, the, so many of our projects like we start on spec about halfway through, they find a tenant and then it becomes a very custom project. And it's just nicer when you don't have to deal with all that. Yeah. <laughs> and do lend do are most lenders it's like if you bring somebody an industrial project or a multi they get it. It's it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. This is a unique niche. Do lenders get it? No. No. No, not not that I've seen. They okay. they 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 do struggle with it. They don't understand the lease up, they don't understand the rents. They want to see a lot of evidence ar around it and and then you give them all the evidence and they still sit on it. How long are the leases usually? 
For the smaller ones, we're looking at like 18 months to three years. Okay. So there's, there, there is turnover. And yeah. I think that makes people a little nervous too. Yeah. You know, you don't, then, and they're not credit tenants. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're VC backed or yeah. the big ones, I guess are credit, mm-hmm. but these small ones, no, I mean, even the big ones sometimes aren't, you know, they're, they're still VC. Like even <laughs> our labs. Yeah. Interesting. Do, do they have revenue or it's kind of like you're designing something and if it works, you're getting paid big time. I think it's more that the second, it, yeah. because it's so much of it is IP. They're they're researching things that if it works, they're selling to other companies. They're selling that that intellectual property. Yep. Some of them are profitable, but I think it's like they're you know they're, they're years in. Yeah. yeah. If you're going to start a lab, you you've been funded pretty well for yes. they give you. It's not like hey, hope you can come up with it in six months. Right, and then there's These always there's a while to right. Develop. And and the funding is is fickle. They there are certain things that they like. Every year we see like you know a couple of years ago it was like alternative protein. Everybody wanted to put money into fake meat, fake chicken, fake fish. Then that moved on, and now it's carbon capture. So you've got like the corn industry is subsidizing. It, like you have these these big old markets that you don't think about that are that are coming in and trying to like they realize beef is going away they're going to lose corn. So they want to get in on, on alternative protein, or you have like environmental folks that are working on carbon oil companies are working on carbon capture. It's bananas. It's interesting. We've designed a building. We've built a building. Uh, we have tenants in it. Do you have a philosophy on hold period? Are these things you want to own a long time? Do you want to flip them? I want to own a long time. Yeah. I think that the buildings that the lab buildings particularly take some time to season before yep. people really understand that they're known as a lab building. And at that point, your rents can go up more. Yep. But then truly, we're looking at these things as as like, this is our this is our current play, but there's a longer cycle that we have in mind. And whether that's actually developing or entitling for development, we're really looking for partners who can, who, who are aligned in, in holding for a long time and, and like really letting these things play out. And, and I, I, I could have asked this at the beginning, but I think it's a, you've seen hundreds of projects all over the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. You could kind of niche down into lots of different things. Mm-hmm. We've talked about why this is a great investment, but like from your perspective, why did this become the one that you're like, I think the most opportunity is here? Is it because you've seen this play out so many times? Is it because you've run the numbers and you're just banging your head against the wall going, this is unbelievable? Like, why did this become the niche? For me, there's there's a lot less competition. So there's a lot of people in multifamily and there's a lot of regulation around multifamily. So I'm not trying to be in that zone. I don't want to hold multifamily long term. I might develop it, but I don't want to sit on it. God bless all our multifamily Right, owners. I know you guys like I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. It, we is, need you. it is not for me. Yeah. So I know I want to be in kind of the commercial space. I've done a lot of office projects like I, I understand that, but we know where office is right now. This is something where I see I see not a lot of experts. I see a lot of people doing it, but not a lot of people who are really experts in what they're doing, especially at the smaller scale. Most of the people who I see are, you know, you've got Alexandria, who's like, that's the name brand. They're they're working at a very, very high level on a very large scale, mm-hmm. institutional capital. I, so I'm not in that zone. I'm looking at smaller deals to start. And this seems like a really easy way for me to use all of the knowledge that I've learned on all of these other projects and be able to apply them to this one, you know, this one situation. And I love it. Yeah. All right. We're going to end on a couple fun questions. Okay. 
And this is, uh, th- those were all fun, but these are kind of more fun. All right. You said, I can identify a ridiculous number of birds. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> How many birds do you think you can identify? Oh, by sight? I don't know, probably 60. So when you're walking around town, you're in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, there's a sparrow or there's a yeah. robin. Yeah, there's a dark eyed junco. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's a bald eagle. I know the very, very basic yeah, ones. Yeah, you're naming the big ones. See, you got you to gotta get more comfortable. Okay, with what's them. the most rare bird? I mean... It, they, or what's a bird that you think of that maybe nobody else has ever heard of? Oh, I mean, uh, besides a rare junco, or there, that's, that's, a, that's a common bird. That's actually, that's pretty oh, okay. common. I'm just I'm talking about mostly backyard birds. I do have right now a pair of baby great horned owls in my backyard. Oh wow! Yeah, and you they, own them or they're just no, live there? I don't, okay. I don't own them. Okay. but they yeah, I have a, I've a made a pair of, of great horned owls, and they um they just had two babies, and they're hilarious. They make these like insane screeching noises all night long. That's like I'm hungry. Like where's my food? And they're they're massive. I mean they're babies, but they're like the size of I don't know um, a mountain lion. Okay, and the last one is you you're a trail runner and you long distance run. I do. Yeah. And I think you you tend to find that running is is attached to people that are very driven and get a lot done because that might be a release. Yeah. I I will tell you so m- most of my career I have approached my work like a badger. I am tenacious. Like I just think if I just work harder than everyone else, if I just hustle more, if I just get to that next level and like unlock unlock I'm I'm going to get there. And something happened along the way where I just I had this epiphany that applying more pressure is no longer helpful. I'm I'm already working kind of at my capacity. What I actually need is to get away from the badger, to like have have some peace and like time for big thinking. And the only way I found is just to exhaust that thing. So like I run and I run and I run and then I get to a point where Everything else is is tired and my mind is clear. And that's when I do my best thinking. How far can you run? I mean, I guess as far as I want, but I know. Really? I mean, yeah. How long have like, you been doing it? 20 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So could you go run like 10 miles right now? Yeah, I could. I don't know if I've ever run more than five miles in my whole life. I mean, I don't. So I, I will say I don't do like the the ultras. Like yeah. I'm not I'm I don't do like 50 miles. No. Could you do a marathon? Have yeah. you ever done one? Yeah, I, I I could, and I have. And you run every day? I run almost every day. Like awesome. not every single day, but I run. I feel better when I run. Okay. I'm just like clear. Um, but yeah, I do think like most of the people I know who are who are real runners are are like a little intense. Shallow. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you. I've had a blast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.